0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. My guest for today is Mira Baalberg, the author of Blood for Thought, the reinvention of sacrifice in early rabbinic literature. Blood for Thought delves into a relatively unexplored area of rabbinic literature, the vast corpus of laws, regulations, and instructions pertaining to sacrificial rituals. Mira Baalberg traces the traces and analyzes the ways in which the early rabbis interpreted and conceived of biblical sacrifices reinventing them as a site through which to negotiate intellectual, cultural, and religious trends and practices in their surrounding world. Rather than viewing the rabbinic project as an attempt to generate a non-sacrificial version of Judaism, she argues that the rabbis developed a new sacrificial Jewish tradition altogether, consisting of not merely substitutes to sacrifice, but elaborate practical manuals that redefine the processes themselves, radically transforming the meanings of sacrifice its efficacy, and its value. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, our first question always sort of tries to get at how, how our author became interested in uh, the study of uh, rabbinic literature in this case, and really specifically in the study of sacrificial legislation in early rabbinic mm-hmm. literature. How did you come to, to study this material?
1: Okay, so um, I actually uh, grew up in Israel. In, um not, not in a religious family. Um, and I think that for me, the interest in early Jewish sources, so as an undergraduate major, I majored in Hebrew Bible and Talmud, because you can major in those things in uh, Israeli academia. And for me, this was really like people choosing to major in classics today. Uh, my interest in those sources was not so much religious, it was more just of a kind of a sense that This was the cradle of my culture, that I will not be able to understand the language, that I will not be able to understand the imagery, the literature, the ethos, the history, if I will not delve into those earlier sources. So this is really how it started, um, with an equal interest in Bible and Talmud. And... um, At some point, I figured out that there was just so much more to do uh, with Talmud and uh, rabbinic literature in general, because the material is just so vast and uh, relative to the Bible, less explored or explored in very narrow ways, and um, I continued from there, and as time um, kind of moved on, I think my interest became more of a historical uh, rather than philological interest. Um, so this was sort of how I got into this field in general. I love the language. I love the audacity of thought. I love the mind games and uh, the creativity that goes into them. Um, the other portion of that is that, um, when I was an undergrad student, I took a class of uh, one of my required classes for the Bible major on the book of Leviticus. And before I, um, You know, before the class started, I was like, man, I can't believe it. I have to spend a whole semester with the most boring book in the Bible. It was a required class. Uh, It ended up being my absolute favorite class of all times. And what I found really striking about Leviticus, which is admittedly a technical book and, you know, doesn't have like lots of great stories, is this combination of cult and literature. This idea that you take things that people do, um, very ritualistic, very um, kind of precise in the way they have to be done, and you turn it into text. And what does this mean to turn uh, ritual action into text? Um, so this became something that kept on fascinating me and as you um, um some people know my first book was about purity, uh, about which is also kind of coming from the world of Leviticus. I was interested in seeing um, what happens to biblical purity notions, which were mainly like you know Neo-babylonian coming from the world of ancient Greece, when the rabbis of the second and third centuries are rethinking those concepts in a context of you know the Greek and Roman world. Um, this project about sacrifice, Came from a similar um, kind of point of departure. I was really interested in this connection of cult and literature, and I thought that I wanted to see what happens to the biblical sacrificial system when the rabbis, again, second, third century. So I'm looking at early rabbinic materials, are approaching it, rethinking it, and interpreting it. But uh, and. It should be mentioned interpreting and approaching it at a time in which presumably they themselves are not doing sacrifices anymore because you can only do sacrifices in one place, the Jerusalem Temple, which was destroyed in 70 CE. So ostensibly this material is not relevant uh, for the rabbis, but there's lots of it. Uh, and in the case of sacrifice, I was also interested in it because of a bigger question. And that is what is known as the process of the end of sacrifice. So, oftentimes, when we talk about the period that is known as late antiquity, so between 150 and 650 CE, more or less, one of the characteristics of this period is that um, in a span of just a few hundreds of years, which is a very short span uh, when we're talking about history. Uh, animal sacrifice turns from the way in which pretty much everyone in the Mediterranean region is doing religion to a ridiculed kind of antiquated vestige of the past, something that you even use to kind of um, um, deprecate what groups are doing. Oh man, they're doing sacrifice. This is really, it's so primitive. So um, I was interested in this because sort of in the in world history not just in Jewish history this period of transition from sacrificing animals all over the place to not sacrificing animals and to having religions that are more about text about prayer about um um Sort of an elite that is more um, contemplative. This is at least the narrative that has been told. This is something that is not just Jewish. It's all over the place. But nobody really talked about how Jewish history fits into this bigger picture. So that was another thing that I wanted to do in this book, figure out the connection between late antiquity and the, my little corner of the rabbinic world.
0: Well, you open your book with a really sort of uh, uh, interesting passage from uh, an Israeli novelist who who talks about uh, the the temple being destroyed uh, as as sort of a central beneficial aspect of Jewish history? Yeah. Um, and you say that that this is sort of representative of this deeper scholarly consensus, or or maybe this is the question: Is it still a scholarly consensus that the destruction of the temple itself and the end of sacrifice really are essential components of uh, the emergence of the rabbinic movement? Do you do you think this is still the consensus view, uh, and why do you want to challenge it in your work?
1: Um, I think it has been the consensus view for a very long time. So just to uh, kind of clarify that, the story, the the big kind of, you know, uh, exciting story that is being told is something like this. Until 70 CE, everyone was sacrificing. Jews were not different from all the other people with which they were surrounded. They're, they're, central of their lives was the temple and the central of their lives was the cult. And this is how they thought, you know, religion should be done. And then in 70 CE, after four years of um, very, very difficult fighting, uh, Titus Vespasian commands the burning of the temple in Jerusalem pretty much overnight. The way in which you can do religion is gone. Uh, You have to find a new way to be Jewish because, you know, it was so, um, sacrifice centric before. And then a new elite rises instead of the previous elite of, um, the priests. Now we have a new elite. It's called the rabbis and the rabbis are all about study, prayer, um, Torah and, um, some other you know forms of religiosity that are more you know familiar uh, to us from today, and the rabbis, specifically the early rabbis, are really seen as the people who have invented a non-sacrificial version of Judaism, which is pretty much the version of Judaism that we still know today. So that is the kind of arch narrative that I have been told. That I think um, people are still still told, like in schools, or things like that. Um, I think it's still very very dominant there are the the questions that i think are starting to emerge more seriously over the last decade or so in the scholarly study of rabbinic literature is to what extent 70 ce was a real rupture so i think the consensus before that was it was this major earthquake it was a disaster it was a something that required a reinvention of everything Uh, today I think scholars are more willing to say, well, how many Jews were that influenced on their day-to-day lives by the existence of the temple? And really, you know, things like prayer existed way before, um, or or not in relation to sacrifice, and study was existing before that. So Today there is a more moderate view of how central the temple actually was, but um, I think that specifically the idea of how sacrifices were treated was not really touched upon.
0: Yeah, It's interesting, as you were saying that, to note that I think there's a a parallel even with the destruction of the first temple in in biblical studies, that there was a period in which uh, the scholarly consensus of the devastation of the destruction of the first temple was also sort of of questioned. Yeah, I want to focus on the kind of Uh, data that you use. So you're looking at early uh, Tanaitic sources, which Mm -hmm. specifically, and what kind of literature within that, that collection of writings.
1: Okay. So uh, for the purpose of this, um, Project, I was reading, as you said, Tana'itic sources, which are the earlier parts of rabbinic literature. Earlier, that is non Talmudic. So, the most important source for me is the Mishnah, which is the earliest um, rabbinic compilation that we have. It was probably compiled in the first quarter of the third century uh, CE. Along with it, the Tosefta, which is parallel, so it's organized according to the structure of the Mishnah. Um, it is contemporaneous maybe slightly later. Um, And the other set of texts is what we call Tanaedic Midrashim. Sometimes they're also called Halachic Midrashim. And these are um, sort of interpretive works on the four um, books of the Pentateuch of the Torah that have legal parts. So Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those are um, works that in rather than present legal material by topic, like the Mishnah of have to do, they present it uh, in correspondence with a biblical verse. So um, they're also from the same part. They're also probably from the same circles, but the material is organized differently and sometimes has, you know, things that we can't find in other compilations. And um, what interested me in those texts, which are mostly legal ritual, I never know what... Uh, word to use in this context, um, was really their instructions on how sacrifices should be performed. So the material that I was engaging with in this book is normative. That is, it's really the part that reads like a manual of what should you do um, in order to perform sacrifice correctly.
0: So one other question from your introduction before we look at sort of what you find in looking at these texts regarding uh, the way sacrifice is conceptualized, I guess. Um, You you specify there these sort of four theories uh, that scholars have come up with for why these rabbinic sources spend so much time talking about things that would have been virtually absent for the better part of two centuries by the time they're writing and debating and ultimately i'm not sure maybe you don't reject all four of these models but you certainly want to push beyond them to suggest something else might be taking place so could you sort of preview for us what those four models are and then sort of how you push beyond that a little bit to think about why they're talking so much about something that's not happening on a daily basis
1: definitely so uh I will say that I'm not rejecting those four models. I'm actually accepting all of them. I'm just claiming that they don't function enough of an explanation uh, as enough of an explanation. So so the big question, of course, you know, coming from that idea that I mentioned earlier, in which the rabbis create a non-sacrificial version of Judaism, is that usually when um, people asked, OK, so what do the rabbis, the early rabbis or even the later rabbis have to say about sacrifice? The answer was always they say that we can do without them. So there are about 15, maybe 20 statements all in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, so in a relatively late text, um, that present certain activities as substitutions for sacrifice, or even some uh, things that surpass sacrifice. And these things are prayer, fast, charity, the death of righteous people, um, and primarily study, of course. And scholars really sort of put a, an unreasonable amount of weight on those statements and said, okay, this is the rabbi's approach to sacrifices. Sacrifices were okay once, but they were substituted. There are things now that work as as well as sacrifices or better. Um, and they sort of projected this view onto the earlier rabbis and said, well, what the earlier rabbis Pretty much, try to do was to put on these or present these substitutes for sacrifice. By doing that and by focusing on those, however, you know, um, fifteen twenty statements, they pretty much ignore the fact that in early Tanaitic literature, about twenty five percent of these texts is about sacrifice. So you're sort of finding yourself challenged when you're saying, well, the rabbis really didn't care about sacrifices; they thought they were obsolete when you have such an enormous amount of material about sacrifice so how did people account for the fact that there were that there was so much material about sacrifice if it was non-practical if it was not important, if the rabbis thought, oh, good riddance, we have so much better things now. And there's basically four theories the first one, which I think in some ways is the most um, um, kind of common still, is that it's about preservation and that the rabbis sort of had a for lack of a better word, archival or antiquarian impulse say, okay, well, we're not doing this anymore, but these are really valuable traditions. It's uh, something that we must know. It's something that we must preserve. It's a world that was lost. We have to keep it. Possibly for a later time when it becomes practical, or maybe just because, you know, it's important to, to keep those traditions. So this is, I think, the most um, kind of dominant approach that this is documentation of how things actually were. And it was important for them to keep. Um, the second approach is that basically sacrifice turned into liturgy or into text. So there's some scholars who say, well, the reasons why there's so much, uh, you know, text and so much material about sacrifice in early rabbinic literature is that The text substituted the action, the text substituted the ritual. So now, for example, let's take a a common example, Yom Kippur, instead of performing all the sacrifices of Yom Kippur, you're going to read a text about performing all the sacrifices of Yom Kippur. So one other idea was that this was sort of um, a way of performing rituals textually when you couldn't do them physically. Um, Third approach had to do with authority. And the idea was something like this. Uh, the rabbis, when they emerged as, you know, a new power in uh, whatever, you know, after the destruction of the temple, of course, had to claim authority that used to be in the hands of the priests who ran the temple. And it was a power struggle. It kind of a, was a big theme in um, rabbinic scholarship for a long time, that there was a power struggle between priests and rabbis. And... In order to kind of get the upper hand in that struggle, the rabbi had to say, well, not only do we know everything better than the priests, and the priests are corrupt and whatever else, but we know how to do sacrifices better than the priests. So the priests actually come and they ask us how to do their own work. Um, So that was a third approach. And the fourth model um, was pretty much that this entire enterprise of speaking so much about the temple and sacrifices was a way of denying that it was destroyed so that it was sort of a counterfactual approach to jewish history that said we are not living in the real world we are living um, in an imagined world that is still governed completely by the world of the by the laws of the torah and we are going to pretend that we live in that imagined world and we're going to ignore all evidence to the contrary Um, so this approach would kind of see talking about sacrifice as a defiance of, um, of fact. Uh, and what I say is that all of those things are true. Um, it's certainly, I think those traditions certainly preserve, um, or kind of give us evidence of things that were actually in practice during the second temple period. Some of those texts did turn into liturgy, liturgy, unquestionably, you know, when you're, creating normative legislation you are claiming authority this is this is what it means and yes there was a defiance of reality in those texts because one fascinating thing about um early rabbinic literature is that you wouldn't really know that the temple was destroyed if you read it 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 really just doesn't give you any indication of that definitely not when you talk about sacrifices so all of these things are true but um what is missed when you just kind of try to uh, make to explain away the existence of those texts based on those models is that you're not asking the question, okay, but what do the rabbis actually do with this material? Do they have a vision of what sacrifices are? Do they have a way of explaining how it works, what it does, um, how to deal with various things? Can you see things about the way the rabbis talk about sacrifice that are actually representative or indicative of the time in which they lived. These are questions that were not accounted for at all. So people kind of just explained, all right, these materials exist, you know, because they're there. But they didn't really try and explain, well, what do they do? What's interesting about them? What's creative about them? And that's what I attempted to do.
0: Yeah, and you use a, use a word that I want, I want to get your response to here. You talk about the rabbis and these early rabbinic sacrificial texts innovating. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you, you sort of suggest that it's a difficult concept because we don't necessarily... We, we have the static text of the Torah. Right. And we have second temple practice that we can assume but not always know. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly the rabbinic adoption of the Torah legislation and uh, interpretation of it in these rabbinic texts come along. And this is an innovation of a sort. So mm-hmm. uh, how do you how do you think about um, what innovation means in that context? What are you looking for to, to determine what's truly new in the ad- adaption of that literature in early rabbinic texts?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. and It is a challenge. So my main point of comparison is really sort of pan primarily Leviticus, Leviticus and a little bit of numbers in comparison to, um, to rabbinic legislation. Mm-hmm. And this is where I find um Major departures of um, um, rabbinic sacrificial legislation from the biblical texts, which I have to say were uh, pretty much denied by um, most previous scholars, who just assumed that it's like you know it's Leviticus elaborated. They didn't they didn't really uh, pay attention to those departures. Um, again, with a few exceptions. Um, I cannot quite date when those innovations happen, and that is a concession that you know is important to make because we have so little material from the second temple literature. So, uh, or second temple period. When I worked on purity, it was much easier because. People were obsessed with purity in the uh, Second Temple period. We have tons of material from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Josephus describes purity practices, and you know there's uh, lots of other material. So there is much more kind of place for comparison. Um, this is not really the case in uh, sacrifice. There's barely any descriptions of sacrifice um, from Second Temple sources, possibly because it was. just something you did, not something you spoke about. So I'm really not in a position to say most of the time, all right, this is a second century invention. This is a third century invention. All I can say is this is clearly not biblical. Something else is happening here. So you know, space, place of speculation.
0: Well, I want to look at a couple of uh, the chapters in this sort of the The innovations that you see taking place. And in your first two chapters, you're really looking at uh, sort of the process and the various stages of sacrifice as it's laid out, both both in the biblical legislation, but probably more broadly in in ancient Near Eastern sacrificial worship, and noting what the rabbis actually seem to focus on and what curiously they don't want or choose not to talk about. So in those first two chapters, uh, how how would you describe the innovative strategy and how that changes the nature of sacrifice in early rabbinic texts?
1: Okay. I'll try to keep it brief. So, um, the, I would say something like this, that in, um, certainly in, you know, in in the Torah and the Pentateuch and I think throughout the ancient, um, Mediterranean world, sacrifice is a form of communication. A person um, comes to a temple and brings, whether it's you know an animal or a vegetable or sometimes money, wine, oil, whatever it is. Um, and the idea is that this whatever is brought is going to function in a relationship with the deity. So of course we shouldn't have that sort of you know naive thinking that ancient people thought that the deities actually eat what they give them. I, I don't think. Um, people actually assume that but there was a notion that you the sacrificer you're bringing something that's valuable to you and you're bringing it to the deity to the altar in order to show your appreciation your respect and you hope that when the time comes the deity will reciprocate by blessing you by protecting you by giving you favor and we see this all over the place you know starting with the you know the first sacrifice in the Bible, the sacrifice of Cain and Abel, and from there on. Mm-hmm. Um, it is true that the book of Leviticus, or what we call the priestly source in the Torah, plays down that communicative approach to some extent. Um, and it's sort of more about correct procedure there than it is about um, communication with the deity. The deity sort of unreachable but still we find an expression about you know the order the odor of the sacrificing sacrifices being pleasing to god um we have ideas even in the priestly source that sacrifices can be rejected or accepted by god based on various um considerations um different sacrifices are described as fulfilling different purposes um we are talking about something like um The burn sacrifice, so biblical scholars described it as a gift of greeting. It's sort of a way of saying to the deity, hello, I'm here, please, you know, pay attention to me and and accept my presence. Um, And we have sacrifices that are about shared meals and we have sacrifices that are about purification and so on. So sacrifice is a mode of communication and for communication to happen, it's really important. There would be an addresser and an addressee. There would be the person who brings the offering and there would be the the recipient uh, of the offering, which is the deity. And what's happening in the middle is the mediation of altar, sacrificial substance, which is, you know, animal usually, or or something else and priests were managing the situation. Again, priests only in, um, priestly source and to some extent the doctrinomic source, not so much in others. When we get to rabbinic literature, there is a major effort to try and actually remove both the giver and the receiver from the equation and to focus almost exclusively on the process. What does that mean? In terms of the receiver, I'm sorry, start with the giver. In terms of the giver. One thing is that the person who brings the offering doesn't even have to be there. You you can do it, you know, by proxy. That's one thing. Um, The rabbis put a lot of emphasis on thoughts and intentions and planning and state of mind. This is one of the innovations of the rabbis. Biblical sources are not concerned with people's kind of internal deliberations. The rabbis are in all areas of the law. Also in sacrifices, but the intentions and mental disposition that engages the rabbis when it comes to sacrifices is not the mental disposition of the, the giver. It is the mental disposition of the priest. So the hero, if you will, of the sacrificial process for the rabbis is the, the officiating priest and not the person who actually brings the sacrifice. Um, so that's one dimension of it. A really radical thing is that um, in In Leviticus, the owner represents his agency, his participation by laying his hands on the animal. The rabbis remove that, or they don't remove it forcibly. They don't say you can't do it, but they just say, "Eh, it's not part of the sacrifice. If you didn't do it, it's fine. The sacrifice is completely valid. So they're really kind of working systematically to say the the, the giver is not part of the procedure. He's not really important. On the other hand, and that is perhaps more striking is that they also to some extent eliminate the receiver. So how did gods receive sacrifices in antiquity? Mainly through smoke. Nobody thought that they actually eat the sacrifices, but the sacrifice was burnt, the the offering was burnt on the altar and the smoke rose. And this is, and and the gods are said, and this is all over the place, it's in the Bible, it's in Greece, it's in Rome, it's in um, Zoroastrian sources. the deity smells, or a, a, the smoke rises to the sky, and this is the indication that the um, offering was received. The rabbis say something striking. They say nothing actually has to be burnt, all the altar, for the sacrifice to be considered valid. If the, uh, the sacrificial animal was lost, became impure, for some reason it didn't happen, that's fine. You still fulfilled your sacrificial obligation, as long as the blood... Of the animal was handled properly. So if you read instructions on how sacrifices have to be performed in rabbinic literature, it becomes entirely clear that the only thing that defines the correct procedure of performing sacrifice is how the blood is addressed. So the slaughter, the reception of blood in a vessel, and placing the blood on the altar. And that is pretty much it. Uh, which shows us, I think two things. One is that the rabbis create a transition or um, kind of a modification of all sacrifices into a model of atonement in the Bible. The only sacrifices in which blood matters in which blood plays a really, really important part are atoning sacrifices, um, a sacrifice of purification or kind of cleansing from sin in other sacrifices. Blood is just, you know, you dispose of it on the altar, but it doesn't really do something very significant. Um, For the rabbis, all sacrifices are atoning sacrifices. And the other dimension is that I think they really, really want to push away from the idea of sacrifice as a model of communication. They want to make it clear that it's about performing a mitzvah, performing a commandment, performing it correctly according to a protocol, and that it's not a way to approach the deity. You want to approach the deity, you have prayer, you have other things to do. Sacrifice does not do that.
0: You have another chapter that looks at sort of uh, the way in which these early rabbinic sources um, interact with the various kinds of sacrifices in the Torah that you just mentioned and sort of elevate Congregational sacrifice as the paradigmatic example of sacrifice itself, mm. almost to the exclusion of individual sacrifice. And, and interestingly, you, you tie this transition into larger, um, larger arguments that are taking place in the Greco-Roman world on the nature of sacrifice and what, what congregational sacrifice accomplishes in terms of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big setup for a very interesting chapter. But I wonder if you could say something about how that transition is made and and to what end in these texts. Okay.
1: Yeah. So um, a very, very important distinction in um, the rabbinic way of talking about sacrifices is the distinction between uh, individual sacrifice, Kolban Yechid, and congregational sacrifice, Kolban Sibul. And to some extent, this distinction already sort of exists in... Um, the biblical sources, primarily again in Leviticus. Um, but this, you know, kind of, um, way of dividing sacrifices as a central facet of the system, I think takes its cues from the Roman world in which sacra privata and sacra publica are like two very, very central categories, categories that organize the entirety of religious life. Um, and I think they're equally central for the rabbis. Um, what is really interesting um, to me about the rabbis and congregational sacrifices is their insistence that sacrifices that, are, that ought to be brought by the entirety of the people, and there are some such sacrifice, have to be funded only and exclusively by public funds. That is to say that there has to be an annual donation tribute where everybody pays a certain amount of money to the temple and the congregational offerings can only be procured from those funds. That is individuals cannot pay for public sacrifices for congregational sacrifices. That is very, very unusual in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there were some public funds, um, but they were never enough. So most of the time, um, communities relied on the wealthiest people, to provide their, their congregational, their public sacrifices. And we know from, this is actually something we do know from ancient, uh, from second temple Jewish literature that this was also the case in the Jerusalem temple. So this is really kind of a utopia when the rabbis say, no, it's going to be this kind of world in which everyone pays their dues to the temple. And there's actually mechanisms to ensure that if you don't pay people come after you and so on. and there's absolutely no way in which wealthy people will, um, fund, you know, those public offerings, but it really is a system in which every single person participates in every single congregational offering. They really sort of fantasize sacrifices, um, as a way of being part of the Jewish people for lack of a better term. I don't know. They wouldn't call it Jewish, but they will call it being part of Israel, and this is so important to them, this emphasis on um, public sacrifices as something that um, comes from everyone, that everyone participates in, that everybody has a sharing, really kind of obviates or, or makes redundant individual sacrifices. Because if you are doing your thing by giving your, you know, that little income that you have toward public sacrifices, you don't actually need to bring individual sacrifices, especially because, as I mentioned earlier... You know, even in individual sacrifices, you're not really present if you're the giver. So congregational sacrifices become the central thing. And what I argue is that this is actually something that should be understood against the background of the Roman Empire in um, the second, third centuries. Um, because of, I think, two major issues. One is what is known as the fiscus Soudicus, the Jewish texts. So after um, the destruction of the temple, we uh, find in some, both in Josephus and in some Roman historians, the Jews had to start paying a tax to the Temple of Jupiter in Rome. And that was a sort of a punitive tax because of their you know, involvement in this rebellion against Rome. And the sum or the, the amount of that tax was di drachma, so basically equivalent to half a shekel, which was the tribute that the rabbis uh, require everyone to pay for the temple. And we have earlier sources, of course, about the half shekel. The Romans instituted it because it was a good transition from you used to pay it to your temple. You don't have a temple anymore. Pay it to our temple. But I think that this tribute was so important for the rabbis because it was a way of taking this idea of, Okay, we each have to pay this humiliating tribute, this humiliating amount of money that indicates to us that we are not sovereigns, that we are not in our own land, that we are not running our own lives. Let's imagine a situation where we each pay this amount and it does go to our temple, and it not only goes to our temple, but it allows each one of us to really be a part of it. So for the you know, words for the Romans, that Jewish tax was a sign of humiliated Jewish identity. Every Jew kind of by virtue of being a Jew has to pay this amount of money. The rabbi said, well, every Jew by virtue of being a Jew has to pay that amount of money. And we will dis- describe it as going toward this kind of congregational worship. So that's one dimension. The other one I think is the Roman imperial cult um, where, so Rome for a long time as an empire tries to create a religion of the empire. And that. It doesn't really work. You know, they try to bring like statues with the Olympian gods to various places and it doesn't really, you know, pick up. What does pick up is the imperial cult, which is the worship of the family of the emperor and sort of, and Rome itself. This is something that is all over the place throughout the Roman empire. So sacrifice is a very efficient way of creating shared identity. The Romans knew it because sacrifices were really the lingua franca of the ancient world. Everyone did it, no matter their language, no matter their tradition, no matter their culture, everybody sacrificed, almost. So for the Romans to say, "Okay, you can be a Roman by sacrificing was a great way to create a sense of unity in uh, among their imperial subjects. And I think that the rabbis kind of took that cue and said, yes, let's do that. Let's show ourselves, our identity, our unity as a people by sacrificing together I think that their uh, emphasis on congregational offerings really comes from that direction.
0: And so you, you, you show in each of your chapters sort of a different way in which these early rabbinic sources innovate on the biblical-based text in dialogue, sort of with these larger cultural shifts regarding the understanding of sacrifice. Uh, and I think uh, quite interesting that you say you're not as concerned with what the rabbis say about sacrifice, but what they're trying to actually do with it. Yeah. Um, so, one last question. You you conclude then with thinking about what this shift that you've isolated within rabbinic texts might have to contribute to this larger question of the end of sacrifice mm-hmm. in the ancient world. If if even in the second century, uh, even even uh, under Decius or Diocletian, uh, that the imperial cult is still functioning at some level as a unifying. Um, system of sacrifice uh, to to create identity. Why does this system start to break down, and and how does the material that you've looked at in this book contribute to that larger conversation about the end of sacrifice in late antiquity?
1: So it's a big question, um, and I think I only you know have a few pieces of that puzzle. But um, I think there's several things that I'd like to kind of bring into the greater conversation on the end of sacrifice. Um, on a small, on a smaller scale, I would say that um, I think that the way in which scholars writing about the end of sacrifice sort of in the, the big picture kind of uh, approach, the way they approached the Jewish part of the equation was, well, you know, the temple was destroyed and then Jews couldn't offer uh, any more sacrifices. And that was it. And this was the end of Jews working within sacrifice, and then, of course, early Christians also couldn't sacrifice because they can't sacrifice in the Jewish temple. There's no longer a Jewish temple. they're not going to sacrifice to idols because they're not supposed to Christianity then emerges as a religion without sacrifices, and then religion becomes uh, like Christianity becomes the religion of the empire, so now everyone in the in the christian in the Christian Empire can sacrifice, and there you have it so um, I think the way in which this was really thought about was that this destruction of this temple in this, you know, far province of the Roman empire actually is like, you know, a stone that is being thrown to the water of late antiquity and changes world history forever. Um, because there's no, because Jews don't sacrifice Christians don't sacrifice because Christians don't sacrifice. Ultimately pagans don't sacrifice and so on. Um, So one way in which I wanted to interfere in that conversation was to say, hold on, while the practice of sacrifice may be on decline, um, and it is on decline, not just because of what people believe, but also because people are now more urban when you're living, you know, in urban areas, it's harder to find sheep and goats and pigs and things like that to sacrifice. So... um, the empire is also in a very significant financial crisis in the 3rd century. People have less money for sacrifice. Sacrifice is very frivolous. You know, it's bringing very expensive things and burning them. So um, there's many good reasons why sacrifice is on decline. It's not just because, you know, the Christians ultimately, you know, um, um, move it away. But what I wanted to emphasize is that the rabbinic part of the picture is a very helpful way to remember that Sacrifice can not take place on a practical level, but it's still happening big time on a discursive level. And the fact that people may not, you know, on their day-to-day reality engage in sacrifice doesn't mean that it's not a very, very meaningful category to them. And it's not something that keeps on organizing their entire way they're thinking. And I think that's true for Jews. That's true for Christians. Um, in various ways. I think it's true for um, some Roman literature of the time as well. So, that was one dimension of it. Let's take seriously um, the key role of sacrifices in organizing mechanism of thought and religion and law at the time. That's one dimension of it. The other, I think, is thinking about that issue of private religion and public religion. So, a common way in which this was approached in late antiquity is that we're moving away we're moving from public religion because sacrifices presumably you know you go out and you sacrifice and everybody can see you and you're eating with your family or whatever Um, and it's all in the streets and it's all uh, very much out in the open and it's external right it's a it's Expressing your religiosity through actions, and then we have this, you know, gradual tradition uh, transition into interiorized religion. It's happening mostly in private spaces, quietly. Um, it's mainly about thought and feeling and belief, and less about ritual and what you do. This is, of course, a very Protestant narrative of the evolution of religion. And uh, scholars of Jewish studies, going back to your first question, we're more than happy to describe. Judaism in these terms, okay? So, you know, the study, the academic study of Judaism emerges in Germany in the 18th, 19th century, and it has very strong Protestant tendencies. Um, And early scholars of Judaism, Jewish history, really wanted to describe this sort of process of progress from primitive, ritualistic, cultic religion to an intellectual, Cerebral belief oriented religion Uh, So the story worked very well But I don't think this is what actually happens I don't think that what we see In late antiquity Is a transition from public religion To private religion I think we see a transition From one kind of public religion To a different kind of public religion And this transition Is one that actually Suggests that Religion is a unifying Um national and i'd say um communal um element what do i mean by that in uh in the roman empire in the roman republic in the roman empire so of course there's lots of things that um different practitioners have in common but basically every family has you know its own little ancestral gods at home cities have their own cults Um, there's lots of ethnic groups, different ethnic ethnic groups, you know, have their own traditions and it's a very sort of tolerant uh, environment in general. The idea is like everything you do is fine as long as you respect what I do. So, you know, I, if you're going to be in my city, I expect you to respect my gods and perform our practices. And when I'll come to your city, I'll do the same for you. And it's all fine. Um, I think that what we see in the course of late antiquity is a gradual transition into the idea that religion has to be performed in a rather unified way. Um, And this starts actually with the forced sacrifices of Decius and Diocletian. In the case of Decius, in the middle um, third century, he just wants everyone in the Roman Empire to sacrifice. He doesn't say to whom, he doesn't say when, just like, all right, you're like, you're all sacrificing anyway, show that you're a good Roman citizen by sacrificing. Uh, The one group that seems to be under attack there is the Christians, which are seen as, well, you are being disrespectful to our empire because you are not doing the thing that people in our empire do. Later on, Diocletian actually, you know, wants to, I think, persecute Christians specifically um, for that purpose. But I think that what we see is that as we move into the third and fourth century, what people are seeking, or particularly what rulers are seeking, is greater unity in religious practice. And greater unity in religious practice has to do either with sacrifice or with avoidance of sacrifice. Depends on where you're coming from. And I think that the way the rabbis talk about congregational offerings and everybody participating and everybody sort of... um, Performing their identity through sacrifices is part of that movement toward a unified public religion that everybody can scrutinize and everybody can um, kind of take responsibility for the other person. So that is, again, kind of protesting against the model of from public to private, I'd say from public to a different
0: kind of public. I have one last question. So this this work, I think, is uh Interesting for the thesis that you are putting forward, but it's also interesting for sort of the methodology that you're adopting. What does your work say about where the study of rabbinic literature is now and the kind of conversation partners it, it wants to have and where the study of uh, either Tanaitic or Talmudic literature uh, might be going and the kinds of questions it might be asking uh, in, in your future work and in the future work of others who study this material?
1: Okay. So I think that my, um, you know, kind of big uh, battle cry or the thing that has m- mattered to me the most in my work so far and probably also in the future is that I really want to redeem the, the integrity of the rabbis as intellectuals, as thinkers. Um, I think that for too long they have been viewed as these sort of pietistic, provincial, um, you know, religious elite that are doing one of two things. Either they're trying to tell people what to do, so they're, you know, concerned with very, very practical, menial, everyday things, or they are responding to the pressures and disasters and challenges of the time in which they live as sort of national leader leaders or in self- proclaimed national leaders. So, um, so much of you know, scholarship on uh, rabbinic literature in the past has been like, oh, they're responding to Christianity. They're responding to the, de- to the destruction of the temple. They're responding to the, you know, second to the Kokhba revolt and so on and so on. I want to say they are not just, you know, a group that is constantly under attack. And they're also not people whose interests are limited to the world of, you know, some people called pots and pans. They are really thinking about the biggest, most fundamental, philosophical, religious, existential, um, and um, ethical, I think, questions of their time in ways that are comparable to other major thinkers of their time. The thing is that in order to really understand their intellectual world, we can't just go to their explicit statements. We have to go to their most... um, robust and most, um, I think, energy um, kind of charged uh, part of their work, which is halakha, which is the law. So, you know, people wrote about like the rabbi's perception of, let's say, the self or the person based on explicit statements on how rabbis describe the creation of Adam, say. What I'm saying is the rabbis say a lot about personhood and a lot about what is a human and a lot about... What is a self and what is a subject? But the least interesting parts in that of those ideas will be found when we actually look at explicit statements. You have to go to the way they talk about Shabbat and the way they talk about purity laws and the way they talk about um, marriage settlements and about vows and things like that to kind of, you know, garner uh, their really robust intellectual world. And this is what I've been trying to do. I wanted to argue that what they write about sacrifice is not just these kind of petty instructions for a priestly group that doesn't exist anymore in the same way, but it's a very, very intense thought experiment on what is religion? What is the, what is worship? What is, does it mean to live in a community that defines itself vis-a-vis a a certain kind of deity and certain kind of religious institutions? Um, And in this respect, it's really comparable to very similar conversations that are happening in other texts from the same time, except that the genre is different. They're doing it through the genre of law. So this is, I think, been my um, attempt so far. And I think we're starting to see more work like that in recent years that is taking the rabbis seriously as intellectuals. I find that, you know, very, very pleasing development. And um, certainly what i hope to continue doing my future
0: work. Once again, the work is Blood for Thought, The Reinvention of Sacrifice in Early Rabbinic Literature by Mira Balberg. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.